Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. This is Hobbs Q. Um, I'm not on the episode today. Today you're going to have an episode by Alex and uh, our friend Tim Niederreiter. But before we got started, I just wanted to kind of give people an update. Well, actually, two updates. So um, I'm going to talk in a second about kind of the event that we did for the National Abortion Federation. I have a little bit on that. But I also wanted to let people know that this weekend there is a stream going on for uh, at Anomaly 1. Uh, so Lee is a EDH player that people may know from just amazing TikTok videos, uh, very kind, just individual who has been so involved with the community. Their son has been experiencing um, seizures, and this is something that is new and is unknown, kind of what the course of it's going to be. And Lee and their son, Day, could really use support. There's a GoFundMe that has been started. So if you follow kind of uh, Hobbs or my Twitter this weekend, we will be tweeting out more stuff. There's going to be pods to watch. As always, there's going to be things that are going to be given away. This is a little different. This is kind of just a direct support for one of the, the members of our community that could really use it, especially with kind of the state of healthcare and people having to take time work off work and everything. So we just wanted to say that. And then uh, two weekends ago, we did the... Uh, event for the National Abortion Federation, where we did kind of a fundraiser. Uh, and, and in addition to that, we also did gameplay. And we also had a panel of uh, people in magic who really wanted to talk about abortion and reproductive rights. That is actually going to be available on YouTube. And we will let everybody know when it is available in case you missed it. But we just wanted to say thank you for everybody that took part in that event, um, for everybody that came out, supported, played, everybody that donated, everybody that just was involved in any way, shape, or form. Through all of your kind of generosity and help, we were able to raise over $6,000 for the National Abortion Federation, a group that really ensures that both providers and people who need abortions have access to them and help people to find that access if it's needed. That was also matched by a charitable foundation, giving us the ability to kind of raise over $12,000 in a, a two-day weekend. And like I said, the important thing on top of the money that is raised was just the community coming together as it does. And we just wanted to say thank you again. Um, the Goblin Lore podcast is fortunate to be able to participate in these events. And we just want to continue to do that. And we also want to just let people know when those things happen. So uh, like I said, I will not be on the episode today. I had a lot going on, but we have a lot coming over the next month or two. Alex and I have planned kind of just some fantastic episodes in, in, in our opinion. But for today, I'm really excited to hear uh, Alex and Tim talk about prophecy. Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Goblin Lore Podcast. So today we have a special episode, like usual, but a weird special episode, but weird in a good way. I'm really looking forward to this. So um, I'll just unfortunately, Hobbs is not able to make it today um they were doing some traveling and he's got a lot of stuff going on uh including a charity event coming up that will probably have happened by the time this aired so i'm sure i won't i'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it he'll make sure it gets on blast and stuff so we'll uh make sure your people are aware of the details of that but then uh so just me and a friend who i will introduce in a second uh my but I'll get my introductions out of the way as uh, awkwardly as possible, and I'm off to a great start on that. I am Alex Newman, found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler. My pronouns are he, him. Um, and I've got my friend Tim back. Uh, he was on a 
quick short episode that the two of us recorded about Fourth Street, this convention we went to. But actually got Tim here for a honest to God goblin lore episode. Hey Tim, you want to introduce yourself and you know where you're on the internet if folks want to find you? Hi, yeah, I'm Tim Niederreiter, and I'm on. I'm at, you can find me at mentalsellerpublications.com. That's also called timniederreiter.com, but my name's hard to spell, so I I have a two sites. Po- I actually have a few sites pointing to that URL. Anyway, but I'm an author. I'm a fantasy author mostly, and uh, I like. I've played Magic since I was like uh, I guess seven. Magic the Gathering. I started out. My first set, my first cards, my earliest cards are from some very early sets, but my first set that I actually played, I think, was Urza Saga. Urza Saga, okay, that's that's pretty early. I that was, I was big into Urza Saga sort of by accident. That was a set. Um, there was a very very small local convention that I don't think exists anymore. It's up in Saint Cloud for for folks who are kind of Twin Cities uh, locals. Um. And I went there with my dad and some friends of his because we were all playing magic at the time. And they had, there was like one, there was a handful of vendors in there because it was d d It was, there was a lot more tabletop stuff than magic. But there was some magic. There were some board games. They had one year they set up some PlayStations and like my brother and I got entered a Soul Blade tournament, which was fun. But there was like one vendor who was, which was a local store that would show up there. And my brother and I basically bought them out of Urza Saga tournament deck, tournament deck packs for, for folks who don't, who weren't playing back then. Uh, that was a, they originally, the magic had 60 card sealed decks was their starter decks with just completely hundred, like completely randomized cards. And then they decided to go up to the tournament pack, which was 75. That was, I believe the same number of rares, but it, it had more lands and more commons or something. It just, it, it gave you a little more, to do, to work with and then it was a few sets later um, i think by that point they had some pre-constructed decks but within a few sets they were just making pre-constructed decks they didn't have randomized decks you either bought random boosters or you bought a pre-constructed deck and that was kind of what you did but so yeah I, I remember buying a lot of urza saga and and really liking that set yeah my brother had an enchantment heavy pre-constructed deck from urza saga so we were both we were probably both, because my, my twin brother and I were probably like seven. This was 1997 or 1998, so we were pretty young. Anyway, but we'd been playing, we had actually gotten cards back in, was it Tempest? That was our earliest, actually, when we started playing, but we never really got into the game heavily until Urza Saga. But that kind of leads us to what we were talking about today, actually, because back then, there were blocks, right? There were three sets to a block, and there was one big set, that was Urza Saga, and there were two lesser sets. Two smaller sets, Urza's Legacy and Urza's Destiny. And Urza's Destiny is where my story really begins. What I wanted to talk about today. It's kind of funny. Oh wow! Okay, that's cool. See, I didn't, I didn't realize that. So, as we'll, depending on the name, how this podcast is named, the listeners will know by this point. But well, the topic we wanted to talk about, and um, Tim and I were sitting at at Forest Street. We're sitting at this convention. This is if if you missed our previous episode, this is a writing convention that happens in Minneapolis. So that's where Tim and I met, and um, this year was actually held in person for the first time in a couple of years and so we were chatting about things to bring tim on the show to talk about and tim you mentioned uh something about prophecy and how the set prophecy relates to the the phyrexian invasion of Nominaria, mm-hmm. the first time in the invasion block and all this stuff and 
I knew none of this. I I remember I was playing back then. I was really into the story of Invasion. Um, and I read a lot of the books, but I had no idea why prophecy, what that had to do. Like that was the last set. It was the last book before the Invasion cycle. And I had no That's idea right. why it was relevant. So it, it's barely relevant actually to the Invasion because because of events in the Invasion where half the characters that we would meet would have met in Prophecy or half the, because Prophecy is about a war between Keld and Jamura. And it takes place mostly in Jamura. But the thing about Keld is very important during the invasion, but Jamura disappears at the beginning of the invasion storyline. It literally phases out because of Tefri. So, so it doesn't take part in the invasion battles and any of that stuff. However, uh, it's interesting, actually. I think that the, actually, really, the root here is this is the weird timeline of how these sets were released and the storyline, mm-hmm. because Which makes sense. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Sorry, well, that's just a, like that's just a thing, kind of some set doing some set dressing for how the story was told back then. If you weren't playing the the story, it was still early, fairly early years for the game. We were talking six, seven, eight years from from the beginning of the game to you know. Now it's we're pushing thirty. I don't think we're quite at thirty yet. No, we're past thirty. We're getting there. Was it ninety three? Would it be the... no. I think it was earlier than that. Actually, wasn't it nineteen eight ninety one? That maybe I'm mistaken. I don't know. Yeah, you know better. Early nineties. So early nineties. So we're we're in that in that range now. So you know, those first few years for I mean even the first eight years, it's still early for the game uh, relative to where we're at now. And by now. The story is how Wizards tells the story has been much more figured out. You've got books sometimes, you've got shorter, you know, the novellas sometimes, you've got the short fiction on the websites. That's the they're much better at telling the story through the cards for the most part. There's some weird exceptions in the early days, like Tempest that you mentioned. Is is there's Tempest a couple and of actually sets. Saga, Saga and Saga Destiny like that too, specifically, especially Ursus Destiny that the Saga block. Tells a lot of tells a, a very long form story yeah. in the cards. Yeah, and and so like there were there were some sets there where they did it. They did some with that, but it was let's call it hit or miss for the first you know half or so of the game's life. Um, to these days, it's pretty consistent. They how they tell the story with the cards is pretty consistent and pretty better. <laughs> I guess in the way they're relating more story, maybe better is a is the maybe uh, it's t- it's a matter of taste, I think. Yeah, but e- exactly. So I don't want to yeah. I don't want to give a qualitative say that this is better or worse, but it's I think there's more story being delivered more consistently with the cards now than they used to. There, Defin- there was some- definitely with some of the sets. I think it's still. I don't think I wouldn't say it's hit and miss because they still do a lot with flavor text and card art in every set now. And they're very consistently doing a lot with both those things. However, I would say the amount of story that gets relayed in something like Throne of Eldraine is very small. That's mostly a setting-based uh, set. It's very, very focused on this one on the plane of Eldraine. And but then in a set like uh, what was it, um, War of the Spark, it's almost all focused on this story. So they vary what they actually try to do with each set, which no, is cool. That's fair. No, that's that's fair. Maybe maybe what I should say is not that it's consistently more, but that Wizards has a better handle on how to do it and when they want to do it. Yes, but I'd agree with that. Yeah, putting all that aside. So this, so going back to when we're talking about prophecy, when we're talking about apparently there's a saga block, which I didn't realize was also relevant to this. Um, actually, now that I think about it, maybe I did, but 
that's neither here nor there. Um, when we're going back to these sets, there was definitely still story, and there was, but a, it was not told in the same ways. I think they weren't as good at integrating it into different ways into telling it in different manners. And so sometimes you'll get things like, <laughs> I think what we're going to talk about, where there are sets that have relevance and a whole lot of people who actually pay attention to story and flavor and stuff don't catch the relevance necessarily. Yes, yes it took me years to realize why it was so cool, why the relationship between specifically the novel Bloodlines, which is relates to the story versus Destiny, they those that corresponds to that set, that novel. And it's the last of the Urza's block, Urza's saga block. Oh, okay. and That's prophecy. Nice these two combine. Uh, these two really do come together very nicely, and okay. they provide a lot of context for the invasion and specifically the events that follow Elad Emery, who is you know one of the main one of the main characters in the invasion saga, and. His people, when they meet the Keldons, it explains so much when you know what the Keldons have been through already. Anyway. Okay, cool. So where where's a good place to start with this? Okay, so I don't know if you want to go... I don't think chronologically is necessarily the best way to start, but I do want to go back to Destiny and explain, because Keldons were introduced back in, I think, Weatherlight, a, very, a, a set before rarity symbols were head colors. It's that old. It's before Tempest. I want to say, was there a Keldon card in There's Alpha? Maraxis of Keld was the warlord in Weatherlight who had uh, captured one of the characters that Gerard needs to free to, to help lead him into the Tempest storyline, basically. He wants to, Gerard is the captain of the, is the commander of the Weatherlight, and he wants to save the captain of the Weatherlight, Cissei, who's been captured by Volrath. That's the story of Tempest and all those sets. Okay, but, so yeah. No, and, and he's like and the hero of the franchise, right, at this time. Gerard, Gerard is the hero. Absolutely. He's, and yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway. So that's a good relation to, to Mark, uh, to Maxis. I, I could picture the Maraxis, card Maraxis. Maraxis, thank yeah. you. M-U-R. Maraxis. It's M-A-R, um, actually. Sorry. Just so you know. So if, you, if anyone wants to spell that, it was, no. there was a card, I think, that had him, that he was. Yes, big. there was. Because I, I, I remember seeing that card. Because there there was, Keldon Warlord was actually a card from Alpha. So that was a name right, so that Richard Garfield yeah. just kind of, and that's it. Like Alpha didn't have story so much as it just had random flavorful things. Was like Keldon Warlord. That sounds interesting. And then later they're like, okay, well if there's a Keldon Warlord, what's Keld and where's this person from? Yeah. Though you'll also notice that Keldon Warlord, the art for the original Keldon Warlord, doesn't look anything like the the Keldons as we know them now, which is actually important. I'm sorry, this is actually kind of funny. Glad you brought this up. But the fact is the Keldons have always been kind of gray-skinned humans that are big and strong. They're barbaric. They they wage war against each other all the time. They wage war against other people all the time. They're, they're the classic fantasy barbarians culture. Kind of like the Klingons of, of magic at this time. Uh, to use a comparison to Star Trek. So, the thing about the Keldons... And Maraxis was a mercenary. So he was... Wor- and he was up to no good. I mean, like, Keldons frequently are up to no good in the storylines. They're frequently heels. For a long time, they are the heels. And in prophecy, they're the heels. They're the bad guys. They do the bad stuff. <laughs> they're up to no good. Yeah. I but, mean, they're, they're also, by and large, especially early, they are mono-red. Which, especially early on, like this is a thing that they definitely gotten better at with their storytelling and development. But early on, red and black were the colors of the villains. And so it, it really kind of fit that they're like, well, this is a nation of mono red. So that means these are going to be people who are doing the bad things. 
at the very least, they're chaotic neutral in D&D terms. But they're yeah. probably a lot of them were pretty evil. Yeah. But one of the key things that it, we can note is that Weatherlight takes place long after Urza's Saga, even though the set was published way before Urza's Saga. Um, so anyway, because and it's important because Urza's creating the Weatherlight, which is the flying ship that travels the planes, for those who don't know. I guess most listeners to your podcast are going to know that. But because that's a very important part, central part of the lore, a lot in a lot of these older storylines. Yeah, and then it's it's absolutely good to to lay that front, that that groundwork too, just to so and I I, new I just want to listen all the time and... that, that, that the whole legacy, Urza's legacy, refers to the Weatherlight and the other artifacts that were created to fight Phyrexia, the yes. ultimate villain of the original series, of the yes. original of the older sets. Urza's, Urza's which is legacy, this plane of machine people, you know, just it, awful, terrible oh, yeah. place. Yeah, so his legacy Black refers to um, yeah, it, it refers to his his rummage sale, as I like to say. It was all of the it was all the stuff that Urza tried to sell at his Sunday garage sale and couldn't, so then he put <laughs> it in a box, stuck it on the weatherlight, and it became part of the legacy. Yeah, um, and it, I, which is Gerard's and Gerard, the hero of the series, is the guy who kind of inherits this. He's a part of the legacy. Anyway, that that's not a that's not central to the core of the Keldens or the storyline, but. It's central to the core of the storyline the Keldons relate to. However, you, the look of the Keldons is something I want to draw your attention to because Keldons appear in pretty much every era of magic at this point. And not every set, but definitely in every era. And in the post-invasion sets, where that we already come back, you see that they're actually elves. They're elven Keldons. They look like half-elf, half-Keldon, which makes sense because of Aladimri. He's an elf. His people end up allying with the Keldons. Their descendants are half elf Keldons. That part I remember from uh, from the invasion books. I don't. Yeah. Remember, I've read prophecy. I remember nothing from it. But I okay. remember. Let's get to prophecy. Some then. of the uh, the overarching. I mean, if there's if there's important things, you know, texture from invasion and stuff to share. Be honest, there's very little. To to, share to, to, the, the thing about prophecy is it's a war of artifacts. It reminds me actually of the old Brothers War storyline because there's so many artifacts on both sides. There are huge war machines on the side of the Jamarins. And a giant land land battleships and stuff on the side of the Keldons. So you just get this across first. It is a cyber, it is a Magitech type setting at this point. And the Keldons, even the Keldons who are barbarians, are waging war with advanced technology, basically. Which is interesting. And I'm not sure if I even understand fully why that's the case. But, I, but there's this element of how much the Keldons change between Urza's Destiny, in which... A rogue Talarian wizard, Talaria being Urza's school for wizards to help fight the the Phyrexians, this rogue wizard named Gatha, he decides he wants to do what his part to to help protect the, from the Phyrexian invasion that everyone knows is coming on Talaria anyway, um, and so he goes to Keld because he knows they're powerful warriors. He's heard about them. He goes to Keld. He does experiments on the Keldens, trying to make them super soldiers, basically. And that's where it really starts tying together. In the novel Bloodlines, Gatha, his experiments are successful. He's able to create very powerful warriors who are also kind of dangerously scary and similar to more similar to Phyrexians than you might like. Unlike the Metathran that Ursa created to be his vanguard against the Phyrexians. Which, which kind of makes sense because the, the Metathran yeah. troops that he creates are mono-blue when they're represented in cards. Because this is a... This, by the way, is, is part of the whole Urza weirdness. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, he's, he's kind of the worst, I mean, he's the worst, but he's also 
there's a lot of there's just a lot. Urs is a mono blue card for the most part. Like a lot but of the time, he's said, maybe when he's been depicted in card re- more recently, that is he's a blue white or very blue black. good point that he is. Yeah, his, the only card that he was represented in because they couldn't do planeswalkers back in the day. They didn't come up with that was blind seer, which is like him, but not him. Like it was his disguise, in disguise, and that was yeah. mono blue, which is perfect. Fits his complete like moral. He's Not ambiguous at best. A- yes. Ambiguous. There he goes. He he has no. Yeah, he's just going to do whatever it takes to win, and his methods start to resemble that of the Phyrexians by the end. Yeah, but just that's a classic. Hell, not even the well, end. There's some stuff in the middle. There's a classic flavor text from Ursus Destiny. Destiny, the card extruder, one of my favorites, <laughs> which is toward the end, Ursus means began to resemble Phyrexia's ends. That is actually literally in the in the. Yeah, and so no, but that that you didn't think of that the the Metathran that's that's so fascinating. Of course, the Keldons, and here's a entire tangent that I don't want to tangent too hard, but is is something that I'm interested in. It sounds a little bit like story wise, this is um, taking on the trope of like the you know like the Fremen or mm. these desert warriors or not necessarily mountain desert it's usually desert it's a mountain and ice but yeah but it's exactly it's 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 this this sort of story trope of a a group of people living in a harsh environment that everyone else kind of discounts as ah they're just kind of weird and and maniacs and then whenever they actually come into play it's like oh this harsh environment carved them into a tool of destruction and they and that's you know in dune with the fremen and and the wheel of time has their version there's so many there's so many versions of that and i didn't realize that in a way the keldon are kind of oh they absolutely are the barbarians the the keldons are absolutely that's why i say they're like kind of like the klingons they're the guys you need on your side when you're going to face the ultimate enemy anyway so the thing about the thing about that's interesting about Gatha is even though he is, he dies before the end of the bloodlines, he's the Phyrexians find out what he's doing and they go after him, try to take over his research and kill him, uh, and, or corrupt him. He sacrifices himself to protect his experiments, and then we basically don't hear about them again for quite a while in Story World time. What happened to those mutated super soldiers that he created? Those they're not even mutated. They're think of them as genetically modified because. By the time prophecy rolls around, which is probably hundreds of a few hundred years later in time in story world time, I forget, I don't know exactly, but it's at least a hundred years later, because this is after this this storyline takes place after McKetty Masks, after Tempest, all after all these books, and Gerard isn't even born in Bloodlines, so we can assume it's been at least fifty years, and I'm assume more than that. Anyway, uh, so by this point, and not to get too just super nerd here, but. By this point, by the t- the Kel- the Kellens invade invade Jamura, right, and they bring with them what seems to be advanced technology, but which also includes monsters. Did you? I mean, you may not. For those who don't remember, uh, the the masks block, which includes masks, Marchetti masks, Nemesis, and Prophecy. There was the mechanic in masks was spell shapers, but that was a confusing or that was a confusing creature type. That was used for creatures that for all sorts of creatures that could you could discard a card and basically turn it into an, a, spe- a specific spell depending on your spell shaper. Well, there were legendary spell shapers in Prophecy, the Prophecy block. One of them, th- there was one of each color, and the black one, the one for black, the color black mana in, in Magic, was Greal Mind Draker, who's a Keldon. He's not red at all. 
He's a Keldon, and he is a character in the book. However, unlike some of these, however, and and he in fact, when they meet him in the book, he starts out as a baby. He's actually a baby at the start of prophecy, and the story doesn't take place over that long a time span. He is one of these descendants of Gatha's super soldiers. That's my theory, anyway, and that's where these sets really tie together. Because he is sucking the life, he's literally able to suck the life out of the other babies in the, in the cribs around him. So he's an awful monster. He's just the worst. But he uses that power to grow up super fast and super mean. So he becomes an adult very quickly, at least of adult size. So he's basically a man-child. We don't get a ton of character from him. The novel prophecy isn't super well written, in my humble opinion. I mean, there was a lot of problems with it as a, as a novel. However, I find it fascinating that the Keldon's just kind of like, where did Greel come? Where, nobody even asks where Greel came from because that set, that book wasn't that good. The set wasn't that much fun, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's it's sort of it's kind of it's kind of famous over because invasion for not being happened. a great set. We well, yeah, yeah. have an invasion that happened, which was a really cool block. Um, also, one of the mechanics in prophecy, um, I can't remember what it was called. It was the Ristic mechanic. The Ristic yeah. mechanic. Which was the card would do something. It was either slightly undercosted or slightly, you know, slightly overpowered. But then your opponent could pay mana to counteract or reduce the effects of the card. And basically, that just doesn't like, especially in a competitive sense. You don't ever give you give your opponent choices. That's just not a great. Mm-hmm. Those aren't the best cards because then you're you're letting them choose the optimal path, and you don't. And you, I don't know. I'm not a huge competitive player, but that's my understanding there. And it, it also no, I agree even with that. In, I'd agree with that. Yeah. And even in less competitive yeah. play, it doesn't feel as good. Some of those cards that can just not work. Like I think one of theirs is a land that can tap for mana of any color, but then someone can pay mana so that it doesn't make mana or something. It's they're just <laughs> I not. Don't remember that one. There's not a lot that are fun to play with. There's a few. I mean, Ristic Study. If you play Commander, a is a famous that's a fair one. card. Yeah, yeah, totally fair. I mean, that that's one a is a very own... good card, actually. It's but very it's a nice good. use of that mechanic because it, it almost it's reverses just a, it's, it. There, and there are still mechanics like that one yeah. where it's you giving your opponent a choice, but it's to give you a benefit or not. Yes, and as it opposed takes to something to stop you from getting it. So it's yeah, it's a good, as... it's a good card because it it's it's like a lot of these cards out there that anyway make your opponent consider their actions more carefully. Yes, and and that one is unlike some of the other Ristic stuff. It's not. I try to do a thing and then someone else can punish me for it, pay, paying mana. This is almost the reverse where it's like, I get a bonus if other people don't do the thing. Yes. Um, and so there's still and a few, that's, that's, and especially that's a well-designed version of that card. Yeah. Sure. And, and I'll say, you know, as, as a, as a big casual player myself, there's a few cards I really liked in prophecy because all of the wins were just eight and 10 mana spells that were huge effects that you can't play in competitive games, but as a, as a big dartle, like I enjoyed playing those. So I, there was a few things that we played with that fact too. I'm looking at the legendary spell shapers from that set right now. And two of them I played in decks, which um, ones, Get of the lion who has a, uh, yeah. who is a wrath of God. And then Jor, uh, Jorel, Jorail. 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 The Empress of Beasts, who uh, animates all lands target player controls. It's three threes, which can be cool on your side or (laughs) on the other. You can can blow up someone's lands if you, say, turn them all into creatures and then Maget of the Lion or something. If there's some, <laughs> there's, there's some. No left. <laughs> well, on there because Jolrel is only own, target yeah. player, not all. So it's, 
I there was a few cards, but I understand. Like for the most part, especially with the invasion block, and the invasion was the was a gold set, and multicolor sets are always big. It was one of the first. I mean, Legends was the first, but really, I think Invasion was the second. Mm-hmm. I don't think they well, did. Yeah, I think it was the second really set. big gold set because there were other sets that had multicolored cards, like like uh, Weatherlight, and uh, that block had some multicolored cards in it, but they were very small. Same with uh, Ice Age. It's a multicolored card. Yep, Ice Age had a few. Very tiny. Had a few, but it was yeah. like, I don't think there was any set build around it again until Invasion happened again. And that was all three sets were multicolored. So, yeah, you're right. Like, for just from a card standpoint, that's a, that's a reason why, like, Prophecy And even from of, a story standpoint, Invasion very much overshadows Prophecy, which is kind of a side thing. Good point. Uh, a dark side. It's a, it's a dark yeah. side story right before the Invasion happens. Yeah, I mean, and even the first two sets in the block that prophecy are in overshadowed it more because how yes, they tied, actually, yeah, how they tied into story. invasion mm-hmm. because they're about Gerard mm-hmm. in, in uh, Marchetti masks they're about Gerard and his crew and, yep. or they're about Volrath and Krovax and all that. In, yep. In yeah, Rath, that's in true. Em- so, in Emesis. Yeah. So, so yeah, you kind of have Marcadian. She shows up as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you kind of had Mercadian about the heroes for our story, including, of course, Squee, one of the most important cards in that set. And uh, <laughs> Goblin Lore, we got to represent. And then, you know, Nemesis is, was kind of like the villain story right before the invasion, too. I hadn't really thought of that duality. And then Prophecy was, I don't know. I don't uh, know. Something else, right? <laughs> something else. Prophecy is kind of the wet work story. It's kind of the the secret war story of mm. the Merkin Masks block, which I think is one of the reasons it's in the Masks awesome. block. It kind of makes sense there because yeah. it's the, it's the, it's the dirty war that's going on in Domi- on Dominaria that shows nobody cares about the invasion already over there. Like mm. Most people don't even well, notice it's happening. Yeah. They don't know what's going to happen. Oh, that's and so a it fair just point. goes to show how vulnerable they are. And that, but granted that is not necessarily a good concept for an actual novel because it doesn't have to go anywhere. But it is a very interesting concept, again, in this in the grand scope of the storyline. Okay. All right. I so think, we, I, I, we tangented like pretty hard. That much, but there <laughs> you go. We, I uh, think uh, you were telling us something. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about uh, I was talking about Greel, right? Because Greel Mindraker, he's one of the legendary spell shapers in Prophecy, is a Keldon. And again, he's born and grows up all in the course of the Prophecy storyline, which is kind of wild. He also dies at the end, but not minor spoiler there. Uh, he is a bad guy. He's like, and but he's not like the ultimate villain either. He's just a weird monster that the Keldons introduced into the battle during the final few chapters of the book. But the thing is, the main Keldon force in that story is exiled about halfway through the book. They are sent away from Keldon because they lose the champ, the, this duel, and they have they have nowhere to go but go back to Jimura and fight this, continue fighting this war. Which originally everyone was behind them in Keldon, now they don't have any support. Because back home, people, you know, in a typically brutal barbarian fashion, decided, no, we're, we're done with this. And you're, and you're, and we're done with you guys too. You're going away. And so Griel and Latula and a bunch of these other characters that not that important characters, honestly, are sent back to Jamura. They fight the final battle. They lose. But it's an interesting element there because even though Griel's troops are destroyed, Griel and his, and, and Latula and all their people are basically destroyed at the end. Oh, typically by Majid of the Lion and his army. But well, well chosen effect they got for him making a rampant god there. Oh yeah. Um, but just because they lose and they're no, and they're wiped out doesn't change the fact that the taint of Gatha is still kind of. 
I would expect that's still alive in in Kelp because that there's I, I didn't get the impression as as a as a religious reader of these books I'd read them all up to this point. Um, as a kid, I read them all when they were coming out, basically. And I even though I, even when I didn't like them, right? I the last one I read was actually Plane Shift. I never I never read uh, Apocalypse because I was getting pretty annoyed at that point. I was getting older too, but. The thing about uh, the thing about these this storyline is that it directly it does directly comment commentate commentate sorry not only on kind of global politics on in our own world but on the fact that there is no uh, there is no sense of what people are going to I, I think this is actually maybe the most profound part about prophecy is that no matter who you are you don't care about the big world issues in this sense. As a nation, no matter what nation it is, they're like, no, I, I just want to survive. I just want to keep these my people alive, or I just want to conquer this land and take these people as my slaves, like the Keldons are doing in the beginning of uh, prophecy. And I find that it's an incredibly disturbing story, but it's too much like real politics in some ways to be fun. Let me put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very bleak that this is that they're they're so concerned about the this stuff that they're not paying attention to the much Petty larger materialism is, is all that matters. And they won't, it's, it reminds me of the, of the allegory for, I guess I don't want to get too political here, but the allegory for climate change in mm-hmm. a game of Thrones in that series. And in a game of Thrones, it's not that the world's heating up. It's that nobody cares that the undead are going to eat everybody or whatever, turn everybody into them. Um, and that's that. And, and, and in prophecy, of course, the overwhelming threat of the Phyrexians is going unnoticed by everybody on the planet. The difference being that most of them don't know it's coming. It's been Urza's kept that secret. It's not like the Phyrexians are advertising their invasion. So it's slightly different as far as storylines go. But it is this kind of there's like some some yeah, analogy, some resonance. There's there's an yeah exactly there's resonance. And at this point, Gerard knows Gerard has found out that they're plan- the Phyrexians are planning to invade Dominaria. He's just trying to get back there in time to protect his home world basically some plane. Yeah. I think that was, wasn't that one of the big, the big reveal at the end of Marcadian mass that there was, was an invasion the Tempest, fleet there actually. or Tempest. Well, it, you know, in masks, they reveal that the, that the, that there's the fleet is being kept in Marcadia. There's a, a large Phyrexian fleet there, but in, but the, the card, uh, there's a card that actually depicts the, the plan to invade, uh, Dom- Dominaria in the stronghold, I believe that, that, uh, and the flavor text is like, oh, this is Dominaria. Because Gerard's and Gerard's looking at you can see him looking at this big planet, basically this sphere that is Dominaria in the car. Okay. Little a little uh a little bit episode, Star Wars episode two where there's the, the yeah. shot of the, the, the Death Star blueprint. It looks a lot like that, yes. It's foreshadowing <laughs> it in very large in foreshadow. Part. Yeah. Very, okay. very and and the thing is, because Saga actually comes takes place just after tempest in in real time in our world because you know you'll notice the first set you know what the set for the first set to have colored mana symbols or colored rarity symbols right was exodus which is the last set of the rat cycle well then the next set was urza saga and so that so that's the flashback portion of the storyline so what is it what so i kind of think that this is actually more coherent that, I guess this is really what I'm boiling what it boils down to. This story is actually more coherent than people say. And even than I thought at the time, because just because it's out of order doesn't mean it's less coherent. In fact, going back in time basically and showing us all the things that Urza did 
to lead up to Gerard's heroic storyline is pretty fascinating. And also it, it tells us who Gerard really is, right? He's the heir of the legacy. He's the guy who's been tasked with defeating Phyrexia. Yeah. I mean, and, and, some of that flashback stuff really shows you about Urza too. And it, it shows you his, his desperation, even sometimes, you know, maybe hundreds of years before the actual thing. And some of it is, I, I guess a big part too, for him is, is he doesn't know when it's going to happen. He just knows that it's going to happen. And so that's part of, he's, he's just desperately running from plan to plan, trying to find something that will work getting more and more extreme kind of as he goes uh maybe not pl- exactly plan to plan but i think as a curve he probably is getting more extreme no, yeah, as it gets closer definitely but he also i think he kind of gets comfortable and this is another uh, because by the time destiny versus destiny rolls around he's creating the this the the he's creating the le- the the legacy he's okay. created all that that's the legacy it's all in process and destiny is like now i need an army now we need to make the Metathran. Now we need to for- make these machines and, and weapons and find allies and stuff. And then he sends Talarian wizards to Jamura during prophecy. So I guess that's the other that's the other interesting parallel because obviously the the Gatha, a Talarian wizard, goes to Keld in Bloodlines, and he helps them become more powerful. And what do the the what do Rain and Baron and those people and the and the Talarian expedition to Jamura do? They they try to help them become stronger and protect them. So it's an interesting, like, seesaw effect of, like, it, it, it's like, okay, we gave weapons to the Keldans by mistake. <laughs> now we've got to give weapons to the Jamurans to protect themselves from the Keldans. Oh, because eventually the Phyrexians are going to show up and we're going to want to recruit the Jamurans to fight them. Exactly. And, of course, that oh. blows up in Urza's face. When Teferi it, just yeah, phases Tepper's, out. Yeah. Yeah, which that's a whole thing. I remember I remember that, like, reading those books and, and it's like, mm-hmm. that, you know, not quite thinking you know not especially as a as a young teenage you know who me at the time was like well he's just you know running away and not trying to face and then um but then when it's god who was it at one point in the books maybe it was baron um noticed that a, a large phyrexian invasion force just ends up drowning because they thought there was going to be an island somewhere and then it wasn't there and it's like, you know, maybe his plan wasn't the worst. And now, of course, in the in the current story on Dominaria, we're dealing with some of Teferi's regret for that because part of his kingdom or part of part of his home, the kingdom that was his home, is still phased out. He hasn't been able to bring it back yet. So there's there's some more to that whole thing. And and even some modern romance. I mean, is is just to to let all the listeners know about the time travel as we're recording this. We are just beginning to get the earliest previews for Dominaria United. So we don't know all of what that story is going to hold yet, but let's say from the previous Dominaria set uh, where Tavares shows up, that was a big part of his storyline was concern about this and looking for maybe something left behind by Urza that would help him bring his home back into phase um that's how he got his spark too wasn't it he found no, he got his spark during the in bloodlines actually i will no he, again because he he used up his spark during the um time spiral block oh okay he, his okay, old so you got a new spark he got yeah he used his old his old walker spark during um time spiral and that brought some of the kingdoms back 
some of the because he phased out. I want to say it was three places, uh, Shiv. And no, he didn't phase out Shiv. Shiv's it wasn't Indian Shiv. Invasion. No, Shiv's a very important okay, part of the. I'm, I'm totally blanking. Then I, I want to say there were three. I may be wrong. And then it was like one was his home that he just did because this is my home. And then there were two others that said, "Yeah, we'll join you on your plan." And then he was able to bring like the other two home. I think, I think I want to say, and I may be wrong because it's been a while since I read time spiral, but I want to say he had to make a choice about which ones to bring back. And he chose to bring back the others. Cause he's like, they weren't really part of this. They kind of just, I kind of take, got them to take along later. Yeah. So they shouldn't have the, pay the consequences of this, but I, I, it's been a while since I've read that. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know there. exactly that because I haven't, re- I haven't been, yeah, this I'm is, not caught up on the storyline. So no, that's fair. This I, is I getting us a, a little. Uh, this is getting us a little far afield from from the storyline you came on to talk about. Yeah, but, but I want to also tell you. I want to mention though that why is the set called Prophecy, right? Oh yeah, why? Why is Prophecy called Prophecy? There's no prophecy in the, in the story that I remember. No, no, I don't think there's but any. What prophecy is the prophecy? In the cards? No, no, there's nothing about prophecy in the cards. There's no foretell mechanic or anything like that. But you know why the set's called Prophecy? I actually think it's kind of it's a callback. And uh, it's a literary reference for one thing, because you know what a prophecy is in the original biblical revelation meaning of the word? Um, I don't think I could elucidate it, don't you? Okay, well, what a, uh, just just to say, a revelation or a prophecy in the biblical sense, this is where the, uh, the root of the word, I, I think, in basically implies that this is a, re- it's about understanding. It's something is being revealed. It's not about telling the future. So mm. a prophecy might refer to the future or it might refer to the past. It's a, it's a, it's a discovery that something has been prophesied more than it is something that is a prophecy of something that will come. Does that make sense? So so. in the set prophecy doesn't refer to the future. It refers to the past. That's what the title is referring to a prophecy being fulfilled in the set rather than a prophecy being made in the set. And what is the set? And what is the fulfillment of the prophecy? Now that's the real question. And I posit that it is actually the Gatha thought the fire that the Keldons were going to need to be stronger, and they do get stronger in prophecy, because, and they get stronger and they kick Phyrexia's butt eventually. They kick a lot of Phyrexian ass in in the invasion, um, which admittedly is a little weird when you consider they're so nasty in prophecy. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, hey, yeah. those are the bad Keldons, right? Maybe. Well, there's and there there's also a, a whole thing of the. Uh, now there's actually something for us all to unify around because there was a big part of invasion in general, but I want to say it was more apocalypse. And and this also kind of fits in the cards too, but there was a lot of story bits in apocalypse where it was kind of like everyone's being pushed from all sides. And so you just have, you have things like, like you mentioned earlier with, with uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing, is it, was it Eladomri? You were pronouncing it. Eladomri. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but so like him and his elves from Wrath. So they were, they were on the plane of Wrath, which was an artificial plane constructed by Phyrexia, which Mm -hmm. in the second set slash second phase of the invasion actually overlaid onto Dominaria. This is how they, this is how Phyrexia brought just huge armies into play immediately. Well, not immediately. They had it early. Not to mention the coolest location ever created in Magic the Gathering. Oh my god. The stronghold from Wrath Cycle. Stronghold, yeah. Appears in Urborg. Yep. (laughs) Back volcano, castle in it. Exactly. So you have all these things where so then all of a sudden the the forest that these elves are a part of is in the Keldon wastes. 
and so then in the mountains and so that's where like you said like in the current day on dominaria there's these half you know these elven and keldon sort of ancestors now you have these these elves and these half elves keldons in in the current day whose ancestors were this entirely separate force of keldons in their home and this force of elves who were in their home when it laid over and then the two of them are kind of like looking around they're like all these phyrexians around they're like you you know you and these barbarians fighting phyrexians yeah you and these elves fighting them yeah all right and then we just <laughs> and they just join forces and start fighting phyrexians together because they're like I don't know you. I I'm not, these you are, know, well, these are all bad guys. We're not, yeah. We don't have a history of, of getting along, but you're not Phyrexians and you're fighting them. Yeah. That makes you our friend. That's it. Yep. That's all it took. And and that's, and maybe that's, I mean, honestly, if you want to take a hopeful message for prophecy, it's that kind of thing. It's like, okay, so the, the set prophecy is the dark period of division and then the invasion will bring everyone together. But Prophecy itself, I think, is the fulfillment of not Urza's saga or Urza's legacy, but of Gatha's legacy, because it shows that the Keldons have become incredibly powerful. They're powerful enough to invade people, even though they're a weird mountain culture that lives in this like little, I mean, relatively small part of the world. And so they're they're very strong. It's so strong that they can even destroy their this this army they've created just because they no longer want its want what it's doing, you know. Um. Anyway, I, I I don't know. Maybe I wasn't coherent enough, but I think this is a very interesting set, and it speaks a lot to, honestly, geopolitics, which is maybe not the most interesting factor in the world, and it doesn't pertain as as closely to the psychological fa- uh, uh, angle you usually take on storylines in Magic, but it it really fascinates me. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting take. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I didn't know all the stuff about you know, the, the Keldons being part of one of Urza's sort of disciple, you know, one of the people trained by Urza. I don't know if disciple is the right term, but, you know, someone, a former, a former trainee of his, a former student of his, maybe is a better term, and how that sort of all ties into things. And then, like you say, eventually then leads into them actually standing against the Phyrexians like this, this guy envisioned, even if it sounds like some he took after Urza maybe in some of his questionable methods as well. Absolutely. Um, but I'll, I'll, one ends. last thing I want to point out about the Keldons is the card art changes. Most of the Keldons as depicted in the earlier sets look a lot skinnier, honestly. Like Keldon Vandals is a great card art. That, yeah, there's a bunch of these guys. They look pretty jacked. But they're not like hulking freaks like Maraxis is depicted as. I mean, like these guys, like a Keldon just kind of default looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. In the in the invasion storyline, uh, at least a man, male, male Keldons look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Female Keldons have a little more variety, <laughs> but these guys are these classic super barbarians. By the time the invasion rolls around, and they're not, frankly, in Ursus Destiny, where Keldon Vandals is the card printed, because the Keldons got modified and it passed down through their whole culture, their whole society is completely different. And I love the the huge, the vast transformation of their culture that takes place over all these sets. It's so fascinating. Even though, again, they're off in the heel, even though we don't actually get to know a ton about what's going on there, even though there are short stories and stuff like The Fist of Keld, I believe is the name of this one short story. That's quite good. It's in one of those collections from way back. I forget which one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, which is just basically a description of how their, their, their like government works and how they, you know, each each uh, warlord has their fist, which is like their five best fighters who are kind of serve as their their hand. 
Anyway. It's a it's a cool it's a culture it's a fantasy culture that really illuminates through a history that seems well composed in hindsight, which is very surprising given how disparate these story elements are. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that might uh, bring us to an end here. I'm gonna close this with something that I, I realize I forgot to do at the top. Um, just want to give give a, a shout out to the Granite Coffee Company. They're a uh, minority run LGBTQ owned and run uh, coffee company that backed that supports gamers, and they've been supporting us for a while. It's I say every time that Hobbs isn't here, I tend to forget because I'm not a big coffee person. I don't drink coffee, so I don't you know do their their products myself but i know hobbs does he absolutely loves them and i can say at least for myself that i love the organization and all the support they give us and and all the the good stuff that they put out in the community so if you are a person who enjoys coffee please check them out and that's our show for today you can find both of the hosts on twitter hobbs can be found at hobbs q and alex can be found at mel underscore chronicler feel free to send us any questions comments thoughts hopes and dreams to Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter or email us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, to our link tree on our Twitter account and list it in our show notes. This has everything from our discounts for the Grinding Coffee Company to our Patreon. The music for today's show was by Vindergotten, who can be found at Vindergotten at badcamp.com. The art was done by Stephen Raphael who can be found at Steve Raffle on Twitter. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.